have to love the process and you have to believe in the process because it's, you know, an unpredictable journey and it's not a meritocracy. And there's so much luck and timing involved. Welcome to Queries, Qualms, and Quirks, the weekly podcast that asks published authors to share their successful query letter and discuss their journey from first spark to day of publication. I am your host, author Sarah Nicholas, and literary agent Sarah N. Fisk. Lynn Miller Lockman is the author of the YA novels Torch, Gringolandia, and Surviving Santiago. The co author was Zeta Elliott of the verse novel Moonwalking, and the author of a biography of animal scientist and autism advocate, Temple Grandin. She also translates kids' books from Portuguese to English. So please welcome Lynn to the show. Hello. Hello. Thank you for having me. Yeah, thanks so much. So we're going to talk about your journey to publication, and we're going to start by going kind of all the way back to the beginning. When did you first start getting interested in writing, and then how long did it take from then before you started getting serious about pursuing publication? Well, I've written all my life. I started making up stories before I even knew how to write in first grade. And then when I was in second grade, my mother gave me a typewriter and it was, I guess, uphill or downhill from there. Um, (laughs) However, I didn't start writing seriously until I was in graduate school in American history. And I didn't enjoy writing academic treatises. So I sort of turned to writing fiction as an antidote to the boring writing that I had been Mm -hmm. doing and uh, ended up dropping out of graduate school at the end of that year, (laughs) at which point I became a teacher and initially wrote stories based on some of the stories that my students told me. I had written a novel, a contemporary YA novel that got me an agent in 1984. She tried to sell the novel. I don't remember very much about it, except that she sent it to eight publishers who all rejected it. And then she and I broke up, which I guess is a pretty uh, common situation. But led me to believe at the time that all agents were fair weather friends. <laughs> I really did not know the business. I I didn't know how things worked, but I kept on writing and I heard a story from a friend that I just couldn't get out of my mind. And that story eventually became Gringolandia. Mm. It initially was a contemporary YA novel. I had written it in the 1980s and it almost got published at that time. It was an SCBWI work in progress award winner. And I had been revising it for an editor who after about three revisions decided that it wasn't going to work out. Mm -hmm. And at that time I realized or or decided that things weren't going to work out with my writing fiction. And I had a nonfiction project for a library reference book at the time. I was at that time getting my master's in library science at the Mm. University of Wisconsin. So I switched to writing nonfiction. Uh, This was like 1990. Mm -hmm. And then in 2000, I found myself 
writing my son's middle school creative writing assignments. And I realized (laughs) at that point that maybe I needed to get back into writing fiction again. And to do so, I also realized I needed to start over and I needed to learn more, not only about the craft of writing, but also about the publishing industry. So I wouldn't make the kind of mistakes that had um, scotched my career 10 years earlier. How did you learn more about the publishing industry, like how it works and how to query and how to go about everything? Well, the first thing I did is I took courses through the New York State Writers Institute. I was living in Albany, New York at the time and took courses. That was at the University at Albany. And although those classes were focused more on writing for adults, they were applicable because I learned a lot about the industry and about finding an agent and about what editors do, what happens when a manuscript goes on submission, so that I realized that finding an agent, it's not all that common when you find an agent that that book is taken on submission Mm. and not to take it out on your agent when when that sort of thing (laughs) happens. Yeah. So then what happened? Can you break down your journey from then to signing your first book contract? Well, at that point, one of the things that in the course of my career as a magazine editor and writing nonfiction reference books, I became aware of the entire ecosystem of publishing, not just the big five publishers, which I think were a few more big publishers at that point, yeah. <laughs> um, but you know, mid-sized presses, small presses, university presses. And one of the other things I learned at that point that I think, you know, the most important lesson that stood me in good stead ever since is when you are looking at a publisher, you want to go with a publisher that you love their books, that you read their books, that you respect their books, that they publish books like the books that you want to write. And that's how I ended up with my first publisher. It was a small press. Curbstone Press was a uh, literary publisher out of Connecticut that I published my first adult novel, came out with them in 2006. And the option book for that is what that manuscript that was the contemporary novel that I worked on in the late 80s, um, I rewrote as a historical novel, and that became Gringolandia, which was published as a young adult book. And that wasn't really the end of kind of your publishing journey either. So can you talk a little bit about what happened from there until you got your most recent agent? All right. This was a very long journey at this point. Um, 2009, Gringolandia came out. My editor for Gringolandia, wonderful editor, Alexander Taylor, passed away suddenly Mm -hmm. when the book was in production. And this being a small press, he did not have a plan for succession. Although he did not have a plan for succession, there was a board of directors that did a very good job of shepherding the assets of Curbstone Press into Northwestern University Press, 
which mm. took over Gringolandia and has kept it in print ever since. And I then, without my editor, who had been kind of my mentor, I realized that maybe it was a good idea for me to go into an MFA program uh, mm. to develop my craft further and to build my network. So I ended up at Vermont College of Fine Arts in their Writing for Children's and Young Adult program. And through Vermont College, one of my projects there was the manuscript that would become Rogue. And it was the first time I had written about my own experiences being an autistic teenager and adult. At that point, I had I had found an agent, and Rogue sold to Nancy Paulson Books. Did not get great reviews, mm. and I think part of the reason why is that it was a pioneer at a time when most of the books, or almost all of the books that portrayed autism and autistic characters, were written by outsiders. And that had created a kind of canon of portrayals so that when my character showed up and she was based on my life growing up, the character and her portrayal were different from the books that had become bestsellers in previous years. And that is something that I think has changed a lot with the rise of We Need Diverse Books and with the emphasis on what was then known as Own Voices. And now, you know, looking at what, you know, to what extent are characters based on the author's lived experience. So in the meantime, when I wrote Gringolandia for my editor at Curbstone Press, he wanted me to write a companion from Danielle's younger sister, Tina's point of view. And that was the book that became Surviving Santiago, and it ended up selling to Running Press. But it also had the disadvantage of a companion coming out six years after the original book, which can be a problem for YA because, you know, the audience grows up. And there's a new audience that did not know the original book. Mm -hmm. So the book kind of had disappointing sales. And, and that was the beginning of my five and a half year drought. I still had my agent. She still believed in me. But everything that she sent to publishers for five years did not sell. And that involved two entire YA manuscripts, three middle grade proposals, and about a half dozen picture books. Mm. At that point, I had become a translator. So I still sort of had my, you know, a foot in publishing, but really felt like I had, in terms of writing my own work, had fallen off the ladder. Mm. And then on top of that, at the beginning of 2019, and I had just written another YA novel, my agent told me she was retiring. So here I was at the beginning of, of 2019 with a completed YA manuscript, which beta readers had said was my best book. I was at that point too nervous to hope. 
because my two other YAs, and I love those books too, did not sell and did not sell in some very heartbreaking ways, which was particularly that they did not come even close Mm. to selling. I went to the SCBWI Midwinter Conference in New York and met some agents there and, and got some leads on people to query. I did not have a large query list because this book was a historic, YA historical novel set in Czechoslovakia in 1969 and begins with a character's setting himself on fire to protest the Soviet invasion the previous year. I had a feeling it was not only not going to be an easy sell, but that I needed to find the right person to champion it. And then Cynthia Lydich Smith, who is, you know, I knew from, I actually knew her from well before VCFA, because when I was editor of Multicultural Review, uh, we had reviewed her books and published an article that she co-authored. I was a regular reader of Sensations. She had published on Sensations. She'd published pieces I'd written about Gringolandia, Rogue, and Surviving Santiago. And she had an article on Sensations that Jackie Lipton, who is also a VCFA graduate and who I had met when I was a graduate assistant, had decided to become an agent. And I remembered her from when I was a graduate assistant, and I remember how smart she was and how committed she was to all aspects of children's literature and young adult literature, how well-read she was, and she was an intellectual property lawyer. Mm -hmm. So I thought that would make, you know, that she'd be a great agent, and I added her to my query list. My query list, the the first one was seven agents. Wow. I sent my query letter out to seven. I got four requests for full mm. manuscripts, including Jackie. And less than two weeks later, on a Sunday afternoon, as I was walking my dog, I got the call. Mm. She loved the book. She knew my other work. She also agreed that Torch, the manuscript I'd sent her, was the best thing I'd written. And she was really excited about the possibility of taking that book out on submission. At that time, she was with Storm Literary Agency. And I looked up the kinds of publishers that they sold their books to. And it turned out that one of the publishers that they sold a lot of books to was Lerner. And one of the imprints of Lerner, Carol wrote a lab. Uh, Remember I gave that advice, if you love everything a publisher brings out, that's probably the one you should look into. I felt that way. Carol wrote a lab is, I mean, my favorite YA books came from that publisher, including Ashley Hope Paris's Out of Darkness and books by Alana Arnold. And then I talked to a couple of other agents who, you know, one was on the fence. The others, they asked for more time. But I was so excited about working with Jackie that I basically wrote them back and said, thank you, but I've accepted another offer. 
Mm. And they were they were very gracious and, and fine with that. So Jackie and I worked on a round of revisions. It was a major round of revisions. And after that, we went out on submission in the summer. Now, everybody says, don't go out on submission in the <laughs> summer. Nobody's in the office. She sent the book out to 10 editors at the beginning of August 2019. And within a week, we had a call from Amy Fitzgerald that Carol wrote a lab. Hmm that they want to take the book to acquisitions. And in the meantime, because after a five and a half year drought, a whole lot of nothing happening, a whole lot happens at once. Mm -hmm. In June, 2019, Zeta Elliott, who used to live in New York and we've been friends since 2008, she came to visit and she said that her editor at Random House wanted her to write a realistic book. But she didn't have any ideas for realistic books. So she was asking me, what do you, what do you think? And I said, well, actually, I kind of have an idea. Because I had had an idea of telling the story of an autistic 12-year-old boy who lives in the suburbs of Long Island, um, whose father lost his job and was blacklisted as a result of his participation in the 1981 Patco strike. And so I mentioned that to her and she thought that was a great idea. And we came up with the idea of writing the story of this un unlikely friendship between this, you know, transplant from Long Island and an Afro Puerto Rican science geek by day and graffiti artist by night who longs to emulate Jean-Michel Basquiat and has lived in Williamsburg all his life. So that book went out on submission. The lead agent for that was Zeta's editor at the time, Joanna Castillo. And that book went out on submission around the time that Torch did and sold around the time that Torch mm. did. So five and a half years, I had nothing. And then two books, both of which sold in their first round of submission. All right. It is time for the first cue of the podcast. Can you read your successful query letter for us? Okay. Now this, it has a lot of personalization. So hi, Jackie. I read on Sensations today that you're now an agent. Congratulations. And well-timed, too, because my agent is retiring and I'm seeking new representation. With your legal background, very useful for a writer of historical fiction, and your experience living outside the U.S., you're the perfect person for my own voice's historical novel, Torch. Torch is complete at 89,000 words. When 17-year-old Pavel sets himself on fire in Prague in 1969 to protest the Soviet invasion of Czechoslovakia, he leaves behind three people who considered him their best friend. Because of his act of resistance, they are in danger. Stepan, a rebellious hockey player hiding his sexual orientation, accompanied Pavel on the trip from their small town to the capital 
to deliver a protest letter to the Communist Party's Central Committee. For this, he's arrested and interrogated. Their antisocial classmate Tomash, who today would be considered autistic, is the son of the local party leader. Fearing his father's wrath, he backed out of the trip at the last minute. Now he fears Stepan will denounce him for writing the letter they failed to deliver, and he will end up in prison, or worse, a psychiatric hospital. Pavel's girlfriend Lita, the fierce, self-sufficient daughter of an alcoholic former World War II resistance fighter, didn't know the purpose of the trip, nor did Pavel know she's pregnant with his child. If she continues the pregnancy, which is all that remains of her Pavel, the child will have no future because of their choices. When agents of the state close in on them, the three, accompanied by Lita's father in a surprise stowaway, embark on a desperate cross-country road trip and a spectacular plan to get past border guards, electrified fences, and a river to freedom. With only their friendship with Pavel to connect them, Stepan, Tomasz, and Lida must learn to care for each other and work together in order to survive. Based on real events during and after the Prague Spring, Torch is a road-tripping 13 Reasons Why meets Between Shades of Grey, an action-packed story of love, betrayal, and the universal desire for connection and freedom. Along with my MFA in writing for children and adults at VCFA, I'm the author of the YA historical novel Gringolandia, uh, Yalsa Best Books for Young Adults, an America's Award Honor Book, and on the Tatia State List for Texas, among other accolades, and the pioneering Own Voices middle grade novel Rogue, featuring a protagonist who is like me on the autism spectrum. I'm also a translator of children's books, screenplays, and academic articles from Portuguese and Spanish to English, and a travel writer focused on Portugal, where I live for part of each year. I thank you for your time and attention and look forward to hearing from you. Awesome. Thanks for sharing. Thank you. It is time for the quick round. I call it author DNA. Are you a pantser or a plotter? I've become a plotter. <laughs> Do you tend to be an overwriter or an underwriter? Underwriter. Do you prefer to write in the morning or at night? Night. When starting a new project, do you typically start with character or plot or concept or something else first? Usually character. Do you prefer coffee or tea? Coffee. When writing, do you prefer silence or some kind of sound? Silence. When it comes to the first draft, are you more of a get it down kind of person or a get it right kind of person? Get it right, especially at the beginning. Mm. What tools or software do you use to draft? Uh, Microsoft Word, that's basically it. Do you prefer drafting or revising more? Revising. Do you write in sequential order or do you hop around? Sequential order except for verse novels. Mm. And final quick round question, are you an extrovert or an introvert? Uh, probably an introvert. So now we're going to talk about the second cue of the podcast title. What were some of the qualms or worries that you had on your journey? And were they realized or did you overcome them? Or like, how did they shake out? I think that 
everybody and you know i'm certainly one who worried if if i had the ability to do this mm-hmm. you know if my ability to you know to ride i mean when you when you're rejected everywhere uh you kind of get the impression that you're not ready for prime time and particularly for me the thing that i worried about most was you know and and after I was diagnosed as autistic is whether I had the ability to connect Mm. emotionally with my audience, whether I could understand my characters well enough to make them rounded and, you know, whether I could connect with my audience. And now it's time for the third cue of the podcast. Do you have any writing quirks? Is there anything about your writing that you find is kind of different or interesting or unique? Well, I have a very different style of writing for verse novels than I do writing prose. Particularly with verse novels, I write them out by hand in Mm. pencil and, you know, erase a lot. I'll write the first draft of a poem in one notebook and then maybe a few days, you know, a day later, go and rewrite that poem, uh, formatting it, editing it in another notebook. Mm. And then only at that point do I type that poem into the manuscript. Oh. When you were in the lowest parts of your writing journey, what kept you going and why did you stick with it? The stories, the Mm. characters. I had a dream once uh, when I was in the middle of writing Torch that Lita showed up and she yelled at me for not trying hard (laughs) enough to get her story out there. Nice. And if you read Torch, you'll see, yeah, Lita, you don't want to cross her. Do you feel like you made any mistakes along the way that you might want to share with listeners so they can avoid making the same ones? Oh, I, I, I've made a whole lot of mistakes. And <laughs> I think that the really difficult part for me will be deciding which one to highlight. But I would say the one that, you know, was most consequential recently was staying with an agent who maybe didn't know the right editors for my work and who did not have the connections, who had lost the connections because a lot of her contacts had already retired and staying with her out of loyalty and out of fear that I could not find another agent. Hmm. And, you know, there's that saying, you know, having the wrong agent is worse. And, And I wouldn't even say she was a bad agent. She was a good agent. She got back to me. She was honest. She, you know, was effective earlier on. But at that point, she was the wrong agent. And Mm. having the wrong agent is also just as bad, you know, could be worse than having no agent at all. Mm -hmm. Can you share with listeners one of the most important lessons that you learned on your journey? I think that you have to love the writing. Hmm. Because it is so, and and you have to love the process and you have to believe in the process because it's, you know, an unpredictable journey and it's not a meritocracy. And there's so much luck and timing involved that you can't 
let the difficulties of it, you know, and the rejections spoil your love of your story. This is not a business that most people succeed in completely on our own. So who are some of the people who helped you along the way and how? I'm especially grateful to my VCFA community, Mm. um, to the faculty, to my classmates, to the students, the people in, in other classes, including the ones where I was a graduate assistant, because that's that's where I met Jackie. Mm. And they have been my cheerleaders all along the way. They've they've told me about opportunities that I would have never found out on my own. And all I can say is I hope to every one of you who has helped me that I'm as good a friend to you as you have been to me. Mm. Nice. So we know about Torch from your query letter, but do you want to tell us about what you have coming out later this year? I have at least two books that I'm involved with coming out. One of them, I'm a translator of the book. I'm not the author of the book, but I translated the young adult graphic novel, Pardolita. It's a contemporary novel by Joana Estrella set in Portugal. It's in a small town where everybody's up in everyone else's business. And 16-year-old Raquel sees an older schoolmate, Pardalita, and falls in love with her from afar. Mm. And what happens after Raquel and Pardalita actually meet. Mm -hmm. And later in the year, my debut picture book, also (laughs) with Livy and Carito, is coming out. It's called Ways to Play. The main character is autistic and has an unusual way of playing with toys that their cousins don't appreciate. Mm. But this character is going to show them that the right way to play is any way you want. And the illustrator is Gabriel Alboroso, who has illustrated several other books for Levine Carito, and like me, is autistic. Oh, cool. Well, Lynn, thank you so much for coming on the show today and sharing your story with everyone. Well, thank you for having me. Yeah. This is this has been a fun hour. <laughs> kind of. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Queries, Qualms, and Quirks. You can find the text of Lynn's query in the show notes, along with links to find out more about her and her books. If you enjoyed the show, I'd really appreciate if you helped me find new listeners by leaving a review on Apple Podcasts or Podchaser, telling your friends, or sharing this episode on social media. If you're interested in supporting the show, go to patreon.com slash Sarah Nicholas. That is a new link for this year. That's Sarah with an H and Nicholas with no H. And if you're a published author interested in being a guest on the show, please click on the home base link in the description or go to sarahnicholas.com and click on the podcast logo in the sidebar. Again, that is Sarah with an H and Nicholas with no H. Thank you so much for listening and we'll see you next time.